HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working building in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Need a professional place to work from? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. Have you ever wanted to open a restaurant, launch your own food brand, or dive into the ever-changing world of food media? Well, buckle up. Join us for Aspiration to Action, a special live podcast on Monday, June 3rd at Haven's Kitchen in Manhattan. Zara Tangora and Bretton Scott, hosts of Life's a Banquet, will lead us through tales of the good, the bad, and the transformative. Featuring Food World innovators and HRN hosts Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly, Eli Sussman, host of The Line, along with his brother Max, and Allison Kane, host of In the Sauce, in conversation with Jenny Britton-Bauer. Light refreshments will be provided by Paris Gourmet, Wolfer Estate Vineyard, and To Honey. Get your tickets before they sell out by going to heritageradionetwork.org slash action. Here's how I cook. First, I'm at the farmer's market, buying a bunch of French breakfast radishes, the purple fringe lettuces, the spring garlic. I'm thinking about the state of the Blenheim apricots and the Santa Rosa plums. I'm looking for fruits and vegetables that are perfectly ripe. Things that just came out of the ground or were just picked. I'm not necessarily thinking about how the ingredients will go together. I'm just responding to what I'm finding. It's about aliveness, a lot about color, the smell of things, the look. I'm listening to what the farmer has to say and what's going on in the fields. I think we forget sometimes that food is alive and we have to follow that intuition and treat food as a living thing. You just heard a clip of Alice Waters reading from her book, Coming to My Senses, The Making of a Counterculture Cook. When we announced HRN's 10th Anniversary Hall of Fame, Alice was one of the first to be nominated. In this week's show, we're highlighting four of our Hall of Fame inductees. They're all chefs with distinct points of view whose impacts are felt far beyond the kitchen. I'm your host, Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. 
We begin today's episode with Alice Waters. She's helped spark the organic and local food movement in the U.S., reshaping the way people think about what they eat. Alice is well-established in our current food culture, but how did she become the icon we know today? Well, when I was a kid, I was a really picky eater. I was kind of hesitant about tasting things. If after one bite I didn't like it, I just wouldn't go on. And when I went to France when I was 19, I, I really didn't know anything, I feel, about food. I, I was brought into that culture and very intimidated about speaking French, although I knew a little. Alice fell in love with the food and wine in France, but it was the 1960s and times were changing. My friends thought we needed to go to Berkeley immediately and be involved with the politics that were going on at that time. We arrived front and center on this free speech movement. I knew I needed to be part of that, but I was a little afraid. I didn't feel comfortable about, you know, really allowing myself to be arrested as people sat in. But when I understood what was happening in Vietnam, I knew that I had to participate big time. Moving to California in the middle of the counterculture movement gave Alice a strong sense of empowerment. She decided to become a chef despite having no formal culinary training. She opened her restaurant, Chapinese, in 1971. I wasn't really trying to do anything radical. I was trying to cook food that tasted like the food I had eaten in France. And I couldn't find anything that tasted like what I'd eaten in France. And so we started to grow our own. And I had a farm in the backyard of my restaurant. But again, I wasn't putting the organic movement at the front of my thinking. I just came to that over years of searching for taste. And we ended up at the doorsteps of the organic farmers. And I depended on them, and they depended on me. Even if she didn't set out to change the culinary landscape, Alice's impact was huge. People took notice of this small French restaurant in Berkeley, and some big names started coming by. I met Charlotte Godard, uh, Werner Herzog, Kurosawa even came to Chez Panisse, George Lucas, and Francis Coppola. And I didn't quite understand the celebrity of it all. But Alice had even bigger aspirations. I knew that Chez Panisse could not be an island unto itself, no matter how pure and beautiful the food was there. One day, she found herself visiting a prison gardening program and had a conversation with one of the inmates. And he said, uh, I shouldn't be speaking up to tell you this, but this is my first day in the garden, and it's the best day of my life. And I thought, oh my goodness, something has happened in this garden. And I began to understand that that experience of growing food and then offering it to other people was actually transformational. What a beautiful story that was. And immediately I thought, well, if you can do it in a jail, you can do it in a school. 
1995, she founded the Edible Schoolyard Project, which advocates for a sustainable food curriculum in every public school and for free school lunch for all kids. The first school garden opened in Berkeley, where students were involved in growing, harvesting, and cooking with the organic produce from the plot. Since then, it's helped launch food education programs in over 5,000 schools. Public education was a place where you could reach every single child. It's that place of democracy in America. So I just imagined that we needed edible education and that this could happen in that way because it's so critical. When you have an obesity epidemic, when you have global warming upon us, when you have an economic crisis, when you have these serious, serious problems on all fronts, you need to go into the schools. To hear more from Alice Waters, check out episode 15 of Evolutionaries and episode 86 of HRN on Tour. For our next Hall of Fame spotlight, we move from Berkeley to Atlanta. Chef Todd Richards recently won the IACP Award for Best American Cookbook. Soul, a chef's culinary evolution in 150 recipes, is a stunning collection of dishes like collard green ramen, hot chicken-style country-fried lamb steak, and blueberry sweet tea brine chicken thighs. It's complete with beautiful photography and full of stories about Todd's family, who are a major influence on his cooking. Here he is in conversation with Harry Rosenblum on Feast Your Ears. I'm really glad that you put pen to paper. Um, you know, I've really, the, there's a lot in the book, um, and clearly you've put a lot into it, and it is about your, about your family. Um, tell me a little bit about, so you grew up in Chicago. That's correct, I did. I grew, I grew up in the uh, south side of Chicago, and we had a unique uh, household because my dad worked uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, 8 p.m. to 8 in the morning. So he did a lot of cooking at home. Uh, every birthday, holiday, Christmas, Kwanzaa, I think we even celebrated Hanukkah a couple of times, <laughs> awesome. you know, uh, just to have a reason to have celebration at the house. Yeah. And so everyone would show up from the neighborhood. One interesting story is my mom went to the store to pick up some stuff for a birthday party that we're having, met a lady in line, invited a lady in line over. She bought three other people with us, you know. So, you know, that's just how much celebration we had in um, at home and just enjoy food and eating constantly. So where do you think soul food goes next? Soul food in the modern context is really about new exploration and new techniques. My grandmother, who used to make traditional collard greens, you know, on the stove, you know, same ham hock, as she got older, her collard greens changed. She started buying smaller collard greens, incorporated kale and mustard uh, greens uh-huh. inside of them, sauteed them, you know, with just a little bit of bacon, onions, you know, and she used a, a really high-quality vinegar. And my grandmother at the time, I guess was probably around eight or nine, she started using sea salt. So, you know, just to see that, that her progression, now not to say that she never cooked traditional collard greens, yeah. she did, but when it was just her or just us, you know, my cousins over there, she went this route in a whole different way and see that same progression with one ingredient, it's the same thing. And that's the reason why I started the book with collard greens. 
And as someone who is a, you know, a very successful chef and, and working in lots of restaurants, I also love that you include things that are so simple. I mean, the recipe for rice with butter and black pepper. Man. I mean, like, I read that recipe and I thought to myself, man, I want to make that for dinner tonight because <laughs> right. it's easy, right? It's a weeknight. I know I'm going to have to get dinner on the table pretty quick. I do a lot of the cooking in my house. Right. And, and I mean, I just look at that and I was like, God, I can just tell that's going to, I mean, that with you know, some roast chicken or something on the side. I mean, it's just going to be incredible. I mean, that dish, um, understanding the culture again of home, that my dad's family came out of Louisiana's, my mom's family came out of the Carolinas. So rice was a big prevalent thing in our household. And my auntie Florence, she knew I loved rice as a kid. And, 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 you know, and she was a big jokester. So one time she's cracking jokes while we're eating at the table and I start laughing and rice starts coming <laughs> on my nose and all my orifices because I'm <laughs> laughing so hard. And just the simple way of butter, you know, salt and pepper with rice. It, it's about that childhood memory that makes food absolutely delicious. And every time I see that that dish and I turn that page, it takes me so many places as, as a kid. And it's a wonderful uh, enjoyment to share that with everyone. To hear more of Todd Richards and Harry Rosenblum's conversation on soul food, family, and preserving culinary traditions, check out episode 110 of Feast Your Ears. We'll be right back after this quick break. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718 362 3539. Welcome back to Meet and Three. We have two more Hall of Famers we want to introduce you to this week. To quote the one and only Dana Cowan, Julia Tertian is the rare person who sees a problem, figures out how to fix it, and follows through. While she's most associated with home cooking, Julia used her problem-solving skills and network to launch Equity at the Table, to promote better representation across the food world, from professional kitchens to speaking engagements. On episode 7 of A Hungry Society, host Corsha Wilson talks with Julia about her book, Feed the Resistance, Recipes and Ideas for Getting Involved. The idea for this book had its genesis in the days following Trump's election. Here is a part of that conversation. It is a book full of recipes and ideas for ways to get involved. Um, so that means everything from kind of, you know, cooking for your community to sort of understanding that, you know, food justice also means racial justice, um, you know, all these amazing things. And it the content is from both um, myself and over 20 contributors, a really amazing group of folks, and all of the proceeds go to the um, ACLU. Mm-hmm. 
I think what's so interesting about Feed the Resistance is that in food media often we try to think of food as apolitical mm-hmm. or um, conflict-free. You know, it's uh, our safe space to just enjoy and be comforted. Sure, yeah. And the perspective that you take with the book is it can be so much more than that. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be apolitical. Yeah, because it isn't. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I mean, I've definitely, um, you know, uh, I've operated in um, in my career kind of going with that assumption that, it, you know, just it's its own thing to be enjoyed and whatever, and I, you know, I've worked on a bunch of cookbooks that have nothing to do with politics and stuff like that. Um, but I think, I guess, just the more I <laughs> kind of thought about it, and then especially in the wake of this election, I was like, oh, I don't think we can afford that luxury anymore. Right. Um, and those of us who have had the luxury of just enjoying that privilege, like, I just, I think that needs to end. <laughs> yeah. So gathering around food, using food mm-hmm. and dining as a way to... Um, to resist, to yeah. create activism. Yeah, I think um, so much about the book and so much about, um, I guess, my life now is just about connecting these dots between food, which is, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to someone yesterday. They were like, oh, you know, like, but can't, I didn't agree with this, but they were saying, like, can't food just be this thing we enjoy? And, like, why does it have to be so political? And I was like, it can be both things. Like we can, just because like you understand how political it is and that everything we eat has a political ramification, you know, from who grew the food to where you're purchasing it to who you're eating it with, what you're talking about while you're eating it, um, you know, on and on and on. Just because uh, I think, you know, we acknowledge (laughs) everything about it. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy it anymore, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know why it has to be one or the other. Yeah. After the election, I felt like many people kind of upset and concerned and, Mm -hmm. you know, frustrated and very much um, desperate for something to do. And uh, so I went to some meetings at Citizen Action and some other meetings in my area, like our local chapter of Surge and stuff like that. And um, I, you know, started doing things like phone banking and that kind of stuff and, you know, letters and canvassing and all that. Um, and it felt to me, um, like, you know, such important work and work that I was happy to do and, you know, happy to have the time and energy to do, but it it felt like an exception from, you know, my kind of day to day life, which didn't involve that much, Mm -hmm. um, activism at all. And so then when I sort of connected the dots that my work in food can also be my work as an activist, um, you know, it helped me understand that my, role in the resistance can very much mirror my role in my non-resisting life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I can use food as a tool to affect change. Um, And Feed the Resistance outlines, you know, so many of the different ways you can do that. Um, Everything from, you know, just reading a recipe written by someone who doesn't look like you and they tell their story in it and you can really understand whatever that food means to that person and maybe Mm -hmm. how you can make it you know, at your own table, um, to thinking about who, again, who's um, around your table, what are you talking about? And for our last story this week, we move to another guest on Hungry Society. Tunde Wei is a person of many talents. He grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, and he's a writer, speaker, and cook. But his work has also been described as public art and as community organizing. 
Tunde was most recently on HRN as a guest on A Hungry Society. Here are some highlights from their conversation. I'm going to let our guest Tunde Wei explain his work and what he does. Tunde, welcome. Thank you. So I'm a cook and a writer, but before all that, I'm a Nigerian. I'm an immigrant, and I think those are sort of like relevant labels because they affect most of what I do, except when I'm sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I use food um, and my writing to sort of interrogate normativity or the orthodoxy in different spaces. So you kind of use use dining in this kind of subversive way. Uh, so you've done things like uh, what I... We were first introduced via an article that I was writing about a pop-up counter that you were doing in New Orleans. Thank you very much for um, writing that, by the oh, way. Oh, no, it was my pleasure. Yeah. Um, and can you explain this pop-up lunch counter that you did? Absolutely. So um, the name of the stall was S-A-A-R-T-J. And um, it was a space where I was uh, interrogating racial wealth disparity. It was in New Orleans. Um, and what I did was for a month, I served a single, um, a, a, a single dish for lunch. And it was regularly priced at $12. Um, and after going through a series of conversations and interactions with the customer, um, I asked w- folks who self-identified as white um, if they wanted to pay two and a half times more, $30, which represents the income, the racial income gap in New Orleans. So uh, between white and black folks specifically. And um, so the stall using food was a way to sort of like show the true cost um, of say food, but the true cost in general and the cost burden um, of, of, of things for folks of color um, in, in the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you recently did a pop-up in Nashville called Hot Chicken Shit. Hot Chicken Shit was yeah. tackling gentrification, specifically the displacement of black, you know, black residents from the city, you know, due to gentrification. Yeah. In uh, Nashville, the work that I was trying to do was to, there was two things. And the first thing was I identified a census block group in North mm-hmm. Nashville, which is a historically black community. And this um, census block group is black, working class, and facing gentrification pressures. If we raise money by selling hot chicken, how can we leverage the money that, 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 we, that we raise through these hot chicken sales mm-hmm. to purchase property? Because the truth of, of the reality that I saw is that everybody thinks gentrification is a problem. But every, most of everybody is stuck in a paradigm that says the only way out of this problem is through the same prism that got us there, which is this like economic framework that is interested in, in, in highest and best use of property of people. And they, you cannot make an economic argument that makes sense in favor of um, giving people affordable housing. It, it just doesn't happen. That kind of brings me to one of the questions I wanted to ask you is that I think so many chefs are like, I'm going to host a pop-up or dinner series. And it's kind of focused about them and their expressions of, you know, whatever cuisine they cook or, you know, don't cook or whatever. Um, 
and using restaurant spaces in that way to kind of express themselves. But I see your work as, you know, an exploration of the way things are right now yeah. and how we got here. Yeah. I think in food media, we like to have this like narrative of like food brings us together yeah. and warm, fuzzy feelings. And we're all like sitting around the dinner table and the, the pop-ups that you host, like, really confront that and say, you know, well, who is sitting at this table who historically has been invited to sit here? I don't have the, uh, I don't have the energy to disagree with everybody who I, uh, who I think uh, is wrong all the time. It's just like exhausting. And especially when the reality is so pervasive, you know, it's inescapable. And so my only sort of, the only outlet that I have that, that is, that creates um, some safety and doesn't like engender insanity for me is through my dinners. Is that I can be blunt and forceful and say like this shit is fucked up, but I don't have to say it to every white friend that I have or every black person who's a friend of mine who also thinks in this sort of like corrupted um, sort of way. Like I can just like fuck it. I, I can be chill. We can just talk about fucking soccer or we can talk about some other shit I don't have to like be on the prowl every single day but in my work I can in my writing I can I can um, write about it mm-hmm. in my uh, dinners I can do the same thing um, in my the talks that I give publicly I can do the same thing on interviews I, I can do that too So I also ask guests you know what they kind of make of today's dining culture wherever they work or live or you know um, I think with you, what's interesting is that you 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 cook, and you're a chef, and but you also write, yeah. so you kind of are like a part of the dining culture, but you're also talking about it. Yeah. What what do you make of today's dining scene? I think there isn't enough um, competition, in the sense that we only have one kind of restaurant. Most restaurants are concerned with feeding people, or with providing a dining experience. They. There isn't like another genre of restaurants, say, in the vein of my dinners, in the vein of what, say, like the People's Kitchen Collective are doing, or this fellow in um, Philadelphia, Kurt Evans, with his and mass incarceration dinners. Like all these dinners that are focused on um, social issues or focused on 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 serving a, a morality um, apart from just the story of how the ingredients got on the plate and that it's yeah we need restaurants as spaces for escape because we need some um respite from the situations that we live in but these restaurants also embody the same sort of systems that are causing the stress that we're trying to escape from and so if every restaurant is that restaurant um then we're never going to get to where we need to go so we need restaurants that are different you can hear more from Hall of Famer Tunde Wei talking with host Korsha Wilson on episode 45 of A Hungry Society. That's our show. Thanks so much for listening. Check out all of HRN's Hall of Fame inductees at heritageradionetwork.org slash hall of fame. Each page includes their bio, the show that nominated them, and a link to all of their appearances on HRN. Special thanks this week to Pauline Munch and Aaliyah Papes. Meet and Three is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.